my name is uh, Dick Wilson, and I am in the, in the 50th uh, reunion year, uh, and delighted to have a chance uh, to introduce uh, John Locke from our School of Engineering, uh, who has developed a fascinating collaboration across many departments, which I think is part of his uh, uh, greatest gift. And when asked to do the introduction, I said, well, I'd, I'd be delighted to, but, you know, you have picked the least technologically advantaged person in the class of 1963 uh, to introduce uh, the premier uh, computer scientist at the university. To give you a sense of this, my children gave me for Christmas a cell phone. They said, you just got to come into this new era. And it was one of those black cell phones, you know, you flip phones. And when you opened it, it had a dial, like all the wonderful telephones. <laughs> and you said hello and goodbye. And so that gives you a sense of my stake in technology. Um, our presenter today received his education at Stanford and USC and migrated to Charlottesville with the the thought in mind, or as it has evolved, uh, into a wireless health conference. The whole ability to, uh, to install sensors, to do all of these wonderful things remotely. Uh, and when I read about his work, I was buoyed by the fact that if he is, continues to be as successful as he is, the latex glove and the prostate exam <laughs> and the colonoscopy may be a thing of the past in my life. It'll all be done remotely, which I am hoping. I, I see I have plenty of approving people there. Uh, so please welcome John Lott. Thanks, Dick, for that, uh, for, uh, th uh, for that kind introduction. Um, and thank you all for, uh, for, for having me here today. I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, I actually saw, I saw President Sullivan this morning, and she said that she was on her way to the lawn for a reliving of the graduation ceremony for the people who have hit their 50-year, year, year, uh, um, I guess, uh, uh, the anniversary of graduating, right? So did anybody walk the lawn uh, today as part of that? So that's great. What a, what a wonderful event. I know when I, when I first came here in 2000, uh, I, one of the things I was most excited about was to attend my first graduation ceremony, and, uh, uh, and I try to make it every year um, since then. So, um, so it, it actually interesting that you, that you I, I just, I just uh, I'm about to hit my 40th birthday, and my, uh, and my doctor warned me on my next visit um, what the new procedure that I was going to be receiving. So I'm, I'm yes, okay, I'll have to, I'll, I'll get right on that. Um, so, um, uh, you know, so, so a little bit more about, about my background. So I've been here, uh, as I said, since 2000. Um, I got my PhD at UCLA in electrical engineering and, and did my undergraduate at Stanford. And um, one of the things that's sort of unusual about my background is that my undergraduate degree is in a field that's called Science, Technology, and Society, or STS. And it, it is what it sounds like. It's the study of the relationship between science and technology and society. And that had sort of grown from maybe some idealism I had had in my youth of wanting to go off to college and change the world and all those things. I, I knew I was always interested in engineering, but I also really wanted to make sure that I had some kind of positive impact on the world. So even though I, when I arrived at Stanford, I started taking courses as if I was going to be an engineer, but then I started taking sociology courses, and I was sort of, I majored in that for a while, and, and then finally 
finally I discovered this field called science, technology, and society. And it, it just was, you know, sort of opened up a whole new world for me. It, it, it showed me how I could be an engineer as for my career and pursue those, those, those interests of mine, but really do that within the context of society, which is kind of the point, right? I mean, if engineers were just, you know, playing in their shops, not really building anything that was, you know, addressing the needs of society, that, that wouldn't, uh, wouldn't be very fulfilling for all of us. So, um, so as you'll be able to say, I, I, I say that because as, as I think that you'll be able to see through my talk that I, as an engineer, I, I am very much driven by um, the applications that I'm targeting here. And, and so in this case, I'll be talking about some of these health applications that I've been working on for the past decade or so. Um, uh, when I was talking to Dick before I came up here, um, uh, you know, he asked me how I got into all of this. So, so one of the disclaimers is my last biology class was freshman year in high school. So he said he's the most technically, <laughs> technologically illiterate person in this class. I could very well be the most uh, health illiterate person in the, in, in the room here. Um, so, uh, but you know, so it wasn't something where I had in my mind that that was that, that I was going to be pursuing this this application area. But um, I had been here for a few years. Um, I was doing a lot of the same kind of research that I had been doing in graduate school, which was mostly on the design of integrated circuits, the microprocessors that are in your computers and cell phones and all of that. And um, I was actually inspired by um, the person who was my chair at the time, who's now my who's now the dean of the engineering school, Jim Ayler. Um, who, who said, you know, John, look around this university. What's, what's special about, about, about being at UVA? Which is, you know, what can we say about being engineers at UVA that they can't even say at MIT? And, you know, and the, sort of the obvious answer was it's this wonderful, comprehensive university. You can walk in any direction on grounds and bump into a world expert in something. You know, I, 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 if I'm going to spend the rest of my career here, I have to take advantage of that somehow. So I did that and just started, you know, started walking around and setting up appointments with anybody who would talk to me and, um, and ended up identifying on some pretty interesting opportunities. So I'm going to spend today to sort of tell you that story of what's happened over the past decade. Um, some of it will be specific to some of the medical applications that we're targeting. Some of it will, uh, you know, get into some, uh, some details on the engineering side. And so hopefully it's, uh, there's a little something for everybody. And, and I hope to have plenty of time for, for, for questions and, and suggestions afterwards as well. The suggestions part is important. And as you'll see in this talk, um, so much of, of the insight that, that I get that's so important is from, is from the people who might actually be interested in using these kinds of technologies. So I give a lot of uh, presentations at assisted living facilities and, um, um, and you know, various community groups and everything. And, you know, and, and I really want feedback on, on some of the ideas that we're exploring. And, um, and so um, you know, going back again to that, that, that what I was describing of my walks across grounds, one of the things that I, I, I came across as I started talking with people over, um, over in our medical school, and these were clinicians and medical researchers and nurses, um, what I heard time and time again was something that from an engineering perspective was music to my ears, challenges associated with data collection. Right, so you know they often talk about the art of medicine, right? I mean, they, there is there is something that isn't quite quantifiable. You know, you can't quite put your hands on some aspects of medicine. It's a lot of the expertise of the doctors and the experiences that they've had. And so, one of the things that they say is a real challenge is, you know, how is it that they can really get access to good data so that they can research diseases, make diagnosis, a good diagnosis track the progression of a disease, trying to help empower patients to maintain wellness, all those kinds of things. 
Um, and they really talked about, and I, I heard this from almost everyone, that the real challenge of getting good data. So if you think about it, I mean, how does a doctor get data? Right? How does a, a medical researcher get data? Well, when you're thinking about sort of like looking at somebody's physiological parameters, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, 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 I guess the gold standard of that is that you, you know, you go into the clinic, you go into the hospital, and they hook you up to these, you know, multi-million dollar machines, and they get some really, really good data on you, right? Really high quality data. Um, but of course, that's a huge pain for you to actually have to go in there. Uh, it's an extraordinarily expensive process. And one of the big things, this was something that was a real eye-opener to me, something that, 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 that all the people in the medical field said, was that they're only getting a snapshot of how you're doing. When, they're, when they bring you in like that, they, they find out how you're doing at, at that time on that day. It has nothing to do with how you're doing yesterday, might not have anything to do with how you're doing tomorrow or even an hour from now. It's just that snapshot. And that's really, really limited if you think about that, right? So, you know, when you think about inpatient monitoring as, as, as one form of data collection, it has some purposes, but it's, it's really limited in a lot of ways. Um, and then sort of at the opposite extreme is this concept of patient self-reports. Um, one of the things that really sort of surprised me as I started talking to doctors is the answer to the first question the doctor asks you, you know, for your visit of how are you doing, they, that's not just a formality. They actually want to know. You know they, they, your answer to that question is extraordinarily important in some decisions that they make. Um, and, uh, you know, and, of course, it's kind of hard to describe how you're doing. I mean, at least, at least you can sort of describe how you were doing last week, whereas if you're hooked up you know, to a machine in the hospital, it can't tell you that. Um, but you know you can you can't really always be very quantitative about it or very precise and 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 so there are obviously some limitations associated with that too. He says, well, I'm doing fine. And and one of my favorite questions is describe you know rate your pain on a scale of one to ten. I mean that, that as an engineer that question drives me crazy. I, I have to say, well, we need to calibrate me first. You know you know sort of pinch me and then sort of you know slap me and then I'll and tell me if that's a three and a seven and then I'll be able to tell you where my current pain is. I mean it's it's really difficult to actually provide quality data and answers to those patient self-report kind of questions. But they're obviously extraordinarily important, and you're with yourself all the time, so it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's useful in a lot of ways, but obviously still very, very limited. So expert observation, obviously you can have people sort of observe you in a more naturalistic setting. That naturalistic setting is something I found is very important as well. Has anybody heard um, the expression white coat syndrome? Okay, yeah, I got a lot of responses. Yeah, I mean, so that somebody walks in the room wearing a white coat, everybody's blood pressure goes up 20 points, and the heart rate goes up. I mean, all that. So that's not necessarily representative, again, of how you're doing, just in your normal life. Um, so big limitations associated with all these. So these, you know, all of this came out of many, many discussions with lots of people over in the medical center, um, you, know, started, you know, starting 10, 11 years ago. And so... Um, what happened then was at the same time, on the engineering side of things, they, there started to be all these low-power systems that came out, low-power sensors, low-power microprocessors and wireless transceivers. And hearing the things I was from the doctors and nurses and medical researchers and then seeing what was happening on the engineering side of things, there all of a sudden seemed like there was a great opportunity here. And that opportunity has, has taken shape in what we call wireless body sensor networks, or BSN. And it is what it sounds like, wireless sensors that are worn on the body, hopefully very small, non-invasive, comfortable, and can be worn for an extended period anywhere. And you can collect high-quality data. 
continuously anywhere. So that was sort of the vision here. If we can put together this need on the application side and this emerging technological capability, we could really do something here. So this is, and, and the, the phrase body sensor networks didn't even come about until several years later, but this was sort of the genesis of it, looking at what this opportunity was that we had. So the vision, this has kind of all resulted in this vision, this wireless health vision um, that, that, that I often talk about, is where you can have individuals that are wearing various kinds of sensors and the different sensors that you you may wear may depend on what your specific interest is or maybe some condition that you have or some diagnosis that a doctor might be trying to make. And uh, we want to you know, have the sensors be really small and last for a long time and be very comfortable and, and, uh, and where we can get all of that data wherever it needs to go. And, and it can't just be getting the data where it needs to go. We actually have to turn that data then into medically relevant information. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. Of course, and then with that, we want to be able to show that having that information is actually useful in providing assistance. I mean, ultimately, what we're always looking for here is improving health outcomes and reducing healthcare costs. And there's really an opportunity to do both of those. So the kinds of things that we look at here then is the hardware of it all. So all the different you know, electronics that you see here, which is really collecting the data and getting it where it needs to go. We've actually gotten really, really good at that over the years. It started out as a, you know, pretty clunky systems, but in the past couple of years, we've, we've really gotten to be pretty, pretty good at this. One of the big challenges that's come up, though, is sort of the software side of things. It's what I was saying before about turning all this raw sensor data, the ones and zeros of it coming from the sensors, into medically relevant information, things that we can actually do something with on the health side. Huge challenges associated with that. Um, and then there's database aspects of this. Um, you may be familiar with, uh, with recent trends to electronic medical records. Um, how can these kinds of, of sensor data um, fit in to those types of databases? And then looking at the interfaces between all of these. So one of the things that's been really, really um, uh, quite challenging, but also a very rewarding and necessary part of this project is that this is a this is you know a, the, the the breadth the, the scope of these systems is really quite large. So we have experts here at UVA who focus on the sensors. We have others who focus on batteries. We have others who focus on the signal processing and the wireless communication and all of these kinds of things. And that's just on the technical side. And of course, there's the application side, the health side that ends up being part of this as well. But we have to look at the system holistically. Make sure that it all works together. We can't just be working individually on our, on our various parts and then hope that it all comes together and works. Okay. So, um, oh, I wanted, one, one other thing I wanted to mention here, too, is that, um, let's see, get the pointer out here, is that um, this notion of, of biofeedback, um, I, I was saying earlier about um, how important it is to me uh, to get feedback from the community um, when I give these kinds of presentations. One of the best pieces of feedback I, I ever got, um, I was giving a presentation at JABA, the Jefferson Area Board for the Aging here in this area, and, um, and I was talking about all these collaborations I had with doctors and how I was going to give the doctors all of this great data. And people started asking me, well, what about me? How can you help me? I mean, you know, it's not just, it's not just helping the doctor do his or her job better. I mean, what, what, what can I learn about myself? I mean, the sensors are on me. It's data about me. Is there anything that I can get back that's actually helpful to me in, in, in maintaining my own wellness? 
And that was a really powerful idea that really changed the direction of, of, of some of the research that we were doing. Um, now, the kind of information that a doctor might want might be different than the kind of information that an individual might want. Um, and so we have to you know, take that into account as we're just developing these kinds of systems. Okay, so the big wireless health questions. I, I really hope, there, there are two that I want to pose, and I hope that I've gotten you excited about the answer to the first question, which is what, what's, what's the value of this that I just described? I mean, hopefully you can see that there's tremendous potential here to improve patient care, enhance wellness, enhance aging in place, right? Enable people to live independently for longer, lower health care costs, all these kinds of things. I mean, there's really tremendous potential here. And, and I, I hope, hopefully I've convinced you of that just in the short time I've been speaking so far. The second question, though, is really what I want to focus on today. How can this value be demonstrated? So it's, you know, hype is a wonderful thing, and I can, you know, maybe get some research grants, and companies can get venture capital money and all of that by having, you know, this really great pitch like I just gave to all of you. But in the end, the science has to back it up. We actually need to show that we're doing those things that we're promising that we'll be able to do. And so that's where some of the really, really big challenges are, and I'll be talking about how we're working towards that. Um, so one of the first ones is needing the application domain expertise. I've already given the I've already given them the um, this disclaimer of of my when my last biology class was. So I mean, if I if, if I as an engineer just stayed over in Thornton Hall, any Thornton Hall uh, folks from uh, back then? Okay, a few, great. If I had just stayed there in Thornton Hall and didn't talk to people that actually were working in this application domain, I would, I'm sure that I could design a really, really high-tech and completely worthless widget, right? I mean, it, it wouldn't have any utility to anyone because my understanding of the problem is, is almost certainly wrong. In fact, one of the things I often like to say, and this isn't hyperbole, is that whenever I have a meeting with somebody in the health domain, I have in my mind what I think they're interested in. Like, oh, I'm going to be meeting with somebody, as I'll talk about later, who studies Parkinson's disease. And I said, oh, on my walk over there, over to neurology, I have in my head what I think they might be interested in. I am wrong 100% of the time. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, I, I, you would think I, just by luck I would get it right once. But I'm always wrong. And, and I always, on the walk back, I always feel a little bit silly, but also sort of validated in my approach of, of you know, working with the domain experts and doing the kinds of collaborations that are necessary in order to have these uh, projects be successful. So collaboration is key. Um, deploying the platforms in, in real human subject studies. So one of the things that really gets me, and I'll take Parkinson's disease as an example again, is I'll see papers out there from engineers, um, and they'll be showing that, that their body sensor can effectively detect tremor. And then you read deeper into the paper, and it turns out that detecting tremor for them was, was putting their sensors on their graduate students and told them to shake their arm like that and says, okay, I'm detecting tremor. It's not, you know, if it's not on the real patients, if it's not out there in the real world, then you haven't validated anything. Um, and uh, so, you know, there's huge challenges associated with this and, you know, issues related to privacy and safety um, and all of that. And, of course, we, we, we go through a lot, of, uh, a lot of, you know, oversight processes and all of that in order to ensure that we're doing those human subject studies appropriately. Uh, but it's extraordinarily important. And the things we learn from it on the technology side are really valuable, too, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, I've already talked a lot about converting data into medically relevant information. Um, I mean, like I said, we've gotten really, really good at collecting huge amounts of data. If we just stopped there, what would be the point, right? I mean, who would do anything with that data? That wouldn't be useful at all. Um, something else I'll be talking about in a bit as well. 
identifying and using metrics that are appropriate for the target applications. So this was where I'll get into a little bit of engineering speak when I talk about mean squared error and some of these other data analysis techniques for determining how well we're doing. But I'm going to turn all that around and put it in the context of the applications we're actually talking about. And then science-based research. So one of the things that I had to do as I started working in this area is go and dust off my old statistics um, a textbook uh, from my undergraduate days and, and look back again about issues of statistical significance and p-values and confidence intervals and all these kinds of things that end up being really, really important. If you're making a diagnosis, right? I mean, you need to, have, you need to measure statistically what your confidence is in that diagnosis. And, um, you know, we can't just, you know, do it on a couple of people and say, you know, good or bad. It's, um, we really need to be using, you know, good scientific principles. And that's just, you know, wasn't something that I had been a part of, uh, of my regular research up to that point. So we, this is all part of the demonstration, right? And, and it's, you know, and again, going back to that, you know, so science-based research, as it informs um, our outcomes related to improving patient care and enhancing wellness. I mean, we actually have to demonstrate that. We can't just claim it in a marketing pitch like I did in my first few slides. So this is where some extraordinarily, hu extraordinarily huge challenges are. Um, even though it's so nice on grounds, I can just you know walk for 10 minutes and find the world expert in Parkinson's disease, I, I, there's still challenges to working together and to doing all these kinds of things and making it happen successfully. But this is where all the rewards are too. This is where you actually see the impact of your work on real people, right? And, you know, going back to my background in science, technology, and society, that was something that was pretty darn important to me. And it's extraordinarily rewarding now to be able to do that day in and day out. Um, and then, as I'll talk about here in a little bit as well, is that it's also so rewarding just on the engineering side. I mean, it's not... You know, it's, it's, you know, in the end, this is all feeding back and improving the engineering research that we're doing as well. We've been able to make some advancements in engineering because we've had these kinds of collaborations. Um, we w insights we would never have gotten otherwise. Okay. So based on all of this, um, and after working on this for a few years and starting to realize this wireless health vision, we realized that we had a larger opportunity here at UVA, um, where there are a lot of people interested in this, uh, both in engineering and in, and in health fields and psychology and nursing. Um, and uh, so we created the, um, this UVA Center for Wireless Health. Um, and um, and it was founded by myself and a couple of colleagues in the engineering school, but includes members from all over grounds in a lot of different fields. And one of the things that we came up with this tagline that I'm especially, especially proud of, uh, because I think it really says a lot about um, the importance of, of this interdisciplinary collaboration I was talking about. So an interdisciplinary team of researchers focusing on technology to improve healthcare which was sort of that vision that I sold, but also healthcare to improve technology. And that's sort of that give and take, right? It's not just us building something and giving it to them. It's the experience then that we get doing that that's feeding back into us. So it's this continuous improvement cycle. Okay, so my group within the Center for Wireless Health is, is called the Inertia Team. Um, and in terms of, you know, for, for the engineers in the room, you know, I'm an embedded systems guy, basically. Um, you know, so I, I try to, you know, build circuits and systems that are energy efficient and, you know, there's signal processing in there, you know, some wireless networking and all of that. Um, but, you know, very much driven from this application perspective, as I've been describing. So I like to build real systems deploy them in real, uh, real clinical applications, and, and, I'll, and that relates to this concept of rapid prototyping that I'll talk about on the next slide. And, um, and 
The specific application focus I'm going to talk about today, um, and there are some other applications that I'd be interested in talking with folks about as well, but the one I'll be focusing on today is the work that we've done on movement disorders. So high-precision motion capture and analysis for a variety of applications where there's you know, health and wellness issues that manifest themselves in human motion. So I'll talk a little bit about that and how that you know, improves our ability to make good diagnoses and track the effectiveness of certain treatments, things along those lines. Um, so from a technology perspective, you know, at, like in the picture that I was, uh, was showing earlier, um, we want to make these things really small, and we want to make the batteries last a long time, and those are competing goals. Right. From an engineering perspective, you kind of enjoy competing goals. It gives you a chance to sort of, you know, have some innovation. If it was all easy, then it wouldn't necessarily really be rewarding from an engineering perspective. Um, but we want to do all that within the context of these health applications. So ultimately improving patient outcomes and quality of life while reducing healthcare costs. And as I was saying before, we actually need to demonstrate that. We can't just claim it in a nice marketing pitch. Okay. So our philosophy with all of this, and you, you, this probably isn't surprising given everything I've said so far, is that we want to tightly integrate technology development, clinical application, and then the optimization that goes in between them. And we constantly want to be working with everyone else, you know, the people, the, the, the doctors, the nurses, the patients themselves, the caregivers, on refining the specifications of our system. You know, again, we don't want to just build this high-tech but, to but totally worthless widget. We actually want to have something that's going to make a real difference in the applications that we're targeting. And so that led us to the development of this research cycle um, that I'll be taking you through a couple iterations of in the rest of my talk, um, where uh, we have the clinical applications, um, and then we have to figure out what kind of information we want based on those applications using that feedback around to how we're actually going to optimize the system from an engineering perspective, and then we have to build it, and then we have to deploy it, and then go back around and around and around. Okay, so let me take you through a quick, a quick iteration of this loop. So the clinical application. So one of the first conversations I had in those walks that I took across grounds 10 years ago was with uh, Jeff Elias and Bob Freisinger in the UVA neurosurgery department. It was sort of a good place for me to start because those neurosurgeons are pretty high tech. Uh, they sort of spoke my language um, in terms of, you know, technology and all of that. And um, they, they had this really interesting problem. Um, they were looking at the effectiveness of deep brain stimulation to control tremor in Parkinson's disease and essential tremor patients. And anybody who's seen DBS, deep brain stimulation, before, I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. Um, I mean, you can see in the, in the image there, they actually implant the electrodes in the brain, and it basically works like a pacemaker for the brain. And, uh, you know, so to, to sort of zoom in there, they have multiple electrodes there, and um, they can stimulate different parts of the brain in different ways. So, and, you know, in terms of the different signals that they can send the brain, they can vary the frequencies and the voltages and what regions of the brain that they're affecting. Um, unbelievably high-tech stuff, but they had a problem. They didn't know how to actually quantitatively evaluate the efficacy of the stimulation. So setting the stimulator in different ways on different people, they wanted to have a quantitative evaluation of how effective it was. So bottom line, what they needed was some way to quantify tremor severity. So that was our clinical application. Can, and they wanted to be able to do it anywhere, right? It was, you know, it's kind of like, um, actually, so, so Parkinson's disease and essential tremor, I mean, it's, it's, it's one of those, those areas where um, tremor severity 
can change a lot over time. So, you know, day to day, even hour to hour. And um, so there was a real desire to be able to be able to continuously monitor it in any location over, over an extended period of time. So signal and information processing. Well, what did we really want? Well, this quantitative evaluation of tremor. And so we kind of were thinking, work, when working with the neurosurgeons, and we sort of had, we, th- we were conceiving of this, you know, joint time frequency analysis. And, and I, I won't get into the details of that, but really trying to figure out how, if we could, if we could, you know, have sensors that could capture the movement, how would we analyze it? So then we started thinking, okay, well, what would the system look like? And we conceived of this idea of having wearable inertial sensing nodes. So inertial, I mean accelerometers and gyroscopes. So things that, you know, so you can measure linear acceleration. So, you know, up, down, and back, and then, and then various kinds of rotation, roll, pitch, and yaw of rotation, and use that to capture motion. And then we can analyze that in some way to make a quantitative assessment of tremor severity. And then we had to build it. <laughs> well, you know, so, and it was one of those sort of things. It's like, you know, we, there were several meetings with, with, the, with, the, with the neurosurgeons, and, you know, they got really excited about this idea, and they said, okay, now go ahead and build it, and then we'll, we'll try it out. I was like, well, that's easier said than done. I mean, it, it took us a while to actually put something together. So, but this, this goes back to the notion that I was talking about earlier of rapid prototyping. So the thing is, is that if we had had this conversation with the neurosurgeons, and they had said, okay, go and build it. If we had then gone off for three years to design the perfect thing, right? It was, you know, it was really small and low power and very sleek and comfortable and all of that, and spent three years perfecting that design, almost certainly when we came back and started using it, we would find out that it was totally wrong, right? I mean, we just, because we, it's, it, it's impossible to be absolutely perfect in, in how you specify a system. Any, anybody who's had experience in industry, especially in building you know, complex engineering systems, you know that it's an iterative process. It's almost impossible to say right off the bat, as, you, as you're conceiving of a system, Here's, here are the complete specifications for this system. You usually have to build something, try it out. You like some things, you don't like other things, and you improve it, and you have to keep on going around. So this notion of rapid prototyping is build it quickly and try it out. Learn from that and improve it and go through that cycle more rapidly. So this was the first thing that we built, Tempo 1. So Tempo is our, is our motion capture system. I would say it is our wireless motion capture system, but Tempo 1 was not wireless because <laughs> it would have been too long to, it would have taken us too long to actually build it, the initial version. So it was wireless. You can see how big it was. It was this thing that you had to clip to your hip, and then we had the wires running from that box to these sensors that we put on the different parts of the, of the body. Um, you can see how big the sensor nodes were here. Um, this had accelerometers and gyroscopes on it. Um, we put them in just in wristbands and in a headband that was around, around the head, and they all wired up into this box here. And, you know, it wasn't pretty. It was one of those things, as, you know, as I often say, only an engineer could love this thing. I mean, it was ugly. Um, and it wasn't comfortable, and it wasn't easy to use, but it worked. We could put this on people, and we could collect real data, and that was pretty exciting. And from that, we were able to learn a lot. Um, and, um, and, and so that has evolved over time. We write at, we're now on Tempo 3. We're actually on Tempo 3.2F. 
because um, we've iterated uh, through 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 a long time. But now you can see it's this sleek wireless wristwatch form factor that provides what we call six degrees of freedom sensing. So uh, three accelerometers and three and and three um, and three gyroscopes, and can you know collect data continuously over an extended period of time, completely wirelessly. And you can put these anywhere on the body. You can have multiple ones on the body, and all that data can just stream off to a cell phone or computer or anything like that. Um, now, just to give you a, a little bit of a glimpse of the future that we're working on right now is, you know, going from tempo one to tempo three was was a big advance, but we're 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 really looking for, for, for um, uh, we're looking now to integrate all of that that you saw onto a single piece of silicon, you know, like they, they like the you know just a couple millimeters on each side, put all of that onto a single integrated circuit called a system on chip architecture. And by doing that, we don't just make it smaller, we also make it more energy efficient. In fact, this is, uh, um, this is a dye photo. This is a, you know, a, a, a sort of a, um, it's a, it's a magnified image of, a, of an integrated circuit that my colleague Ben Calhoun designed. Um, it can do a two-lead ECG, and it operates at 19 microwatts. Now, 19 microwatts, what does that mean? We can run it off of energy that we harvest from, the, from, from body heat. We can take this chip, get a two-lead ECG with streaming data, can just wirelessly transmit all of that data without a battery because we have this technology that can actually steal heat from your body. It, it actually looks at the temperature difference between your skin and the environment around you, and you can get a charge off of that, and that charge is enough to power this chip. So you can imagine that we're working towards wireless sensors that are so small that we call them vanishingly small, that it could just be like stuck to your skin and could run forever without a battery charge. That's our, that's our vision going forward. You can, you can see how exciting that would be. Okay, so we, so we, we, we basically, um, so okay, so, so, that, so that took us around, you know, so we, we, we generated uh, we, um, our, our prototypes and we wanted to start to use them on real people. Um, so let's, let, let's talk briefly then about about some of the applications that we're targeting, and then I'll get into the details of a, of a couple of specific examples. So, and I'm going to lump clinical applications and signal and information processing because we ended up discovering that that they're that they're very synergistic. Um, this the application we're targeting basically informs what kind of information we want to get out of the system, and for and for different stakeholders for that system. It, you know, again, it's different for the doctor than it would be for the patient. Um, but uh, so we sort of link these together. So I'll talk about I'll talk about that together. Now here's my here's my really ugly slide that I always apologize for, but I can't bring myself to take it out of the presentation because it's one of the things I'm most proud of. And don't worry about reading all of this. I'll go through some examples in a minute. But I just like to show that our technology has been involved in all of these human subject studies targeting all these different health applications. So you know the guy who's last biology class was freshman year in high school, um, worked to forge all these interdisciplinary collaborations and really learn about all these different applications and different diseases and physiology and all of that um, in order to be able to actually have impacts on, 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 on real health conditions. So that's one of the things I'm really excited about. And, and I'll, I'll go through some of the details of some of these projects here, but I always like to kind of just show off the list. Um, and... Um, so, uh, so, but I'll, so as the first example, I'll take you back through how things went with that DBS study 
with uh, tremor control and Parkinson's disease and essential tremor patients. Again, that's with Jeff Elias and Bob Freisinger in, in UVA neurosurgery. So there's Tempo 1 when we deployed it in our first human subject study. That's on somebody who had recently had deep brain stimulator implanted. And, um, and we, we were able to collect data on them. And one of the things that's sort of interesting here is that you can see um, this is the raw data here. And it's the X, Y, and Z axis from the different accelerometers. And the thing that was really interesting is that at this stage here, the stimulator was on. It was at, it was at a good setting for this patient. And they were almost perfectly still. If anybody's seen deep brain stimulation for tremor control, it's unbelievable. I mean, you, 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 you turn on the stimulator and the tremor goes away and you turn it off and, and some of the tremors are really pretty severe. So you, and so this person, it went, went from being perfectly still and then they turned the stimulator off and a huge tremor started instantly. And you can actually see that in the raw data. Now, as I mentioned from the signal and information processing perspective too, we needed to think of techniques where we could extract the information that we were interested in from this raw sensor data. So working with the neurosurgeons, we developed a technique that we call TIGER. Um, it's, it's a TIGER energy analysis that's basically um, giving us on the y-axis here an amplitude of tremor severity. So we now, and, and we can look at the amplitude of that signal, and that gives us a quantification of the severity of tremor. It's sort of arbitrary unit. It's kind of relative. But you can get a baseline on someone and see if their tremor improves or degrades over time. And uh, so we were able to validate this across a number of the subjects using Tempo 1. And then, of course, as I was saying before, from our experience with this initial deployment, we learned so much that that led to the improvements of multiple generations of Tempo. So we did lots of, you know, lots of different studies with this technology. Um, one of the things that we did was we would collect data um, when, when, the deep, when, the, um, when the deep brain stimulator was on at the best setting for the patient, and then we would turn it off and, and see what happened, and we would do different settings of the stimulator. That's what they were really interested in. How does stimulating the brain in different ways in different places in the brain end up impacting tremor control. They really wanted to study that. So I won't go through the details of all this, but we had them do different activities, and we could see how different activities brought out different kinds of tremor. Again, anybody who knows somebody who has Parkinson's disease or essential tremor, it's often, sometimes their tremor is more severe when they're moving, sometimes it's more severe when they aren't moving. And so everybody's a little bit different on that. So we had to you know, do this on a lot of subjects in order to, to study these kinds of things. Okay, so that, you know, so lots of different applications that we've looked at. For each of those applications, it's like a, it's a whole new process where we have to figure out what kind of information we want to extract and how we're going to extract it and then validate all of that. And then how does this feed this back into sort of the engineering of the system? So how did we go from tempo one to tempo three and how are we going to go from tempo three to that little, you know, grain of rice that we're eventually working towards that is so low power that it can run off of body heat. Well, so let's, let me give you an example of that. System optimization. So as I said, we want to make these things really small, but we want the battery to last for a long time or eventually even be batteryless if we can run off of harvested energy. Um, and we also want to maintain what I call high application fidelity. You know, so in the end, we can, we can really optimize a system, uh, but provide really you know, lousy data and, and very, you know, very, um, very inaccurate information. And so there's always going to be that trade-off. I mean, we, we could always, you know, really compress the data so that we don't have to transmit as many bits, but then, you know, we're losing something in that process. So it's a trade-off between all these. So let me give you an example of one of the optimizations that we had to make. 
So this is a, a pie chart showing the power breakdown of Tempo 3. And uh, I'll, I'll, uh, um, you can kind of see here, um, sorry, the font's a little bit small, but so the, the, the whole system can, can, uh, consumes 196 milliwatts, um, which in the battery that we have, which is a rechargeable coin cell battery, it lasts about five hours when everything is on. And when everything is on, what does that mean? Well, you can see that the wireless transceiver, this is actually a Bluetooth transceiver, so it can communicate with cell phones and laptops and all of that, um, consumes almost 50% of the, of the whole. Um, the gyroscopes, one of our important sensors, consumes about 40%, and everything else is, is pretty small in comparison. So, you know, pie charts like this are useful for engineers. We can look at it, and it becomes pretty obvious where we should focus our efforts. I mean, it wouldn't make much of a difference if I made, you know, the microcontroller a little bit more efficient. It only consumes 5% of the whole. That wouldn't help much. But if I can cut the power of the gyroscopes in half, then that could make a really big difference. So what are our options? Well, looking at this pie chart, there's a number of things we can consider. One is the transmit compressed data, and I alluded to this before, is that we, um, you know, so one of the big power consumers is having to wirelessly transmit all of that data. Well, maybe we can compress it in a way where we don't have to send as many bits, and there are techniques for that. Lossy compression, okay, where you basically, you're hopefully transmitting the same information but with fewer bits, and they do that with images and video and all of that, a very common thing. We can transmit only when necessary, so that's kind of an interesting thing. We'll take the, um, the, the, the deep brain stimulator um, application as an example, is that maybe we only want to transmit when the person is tremoring, right? So we could turn off the transmitter if, if there's nothing of interest happening, and for different applications that would be at different times. Uh, transmit information instead of data. Maybe instead of transmitting all that, all that raw data, we could process the data on this sensor node and then send the you know, quantitative tremor severity instead of the raw data. That could help too. Turning off the gyroscopes when we don't need them. You know, again, if, it's, if the person's not tremoring, maybe we could just turn off the gyroscopes and then use the accelerometers to figure out if we are tremoring and then turn the gyroscopes on then only when we need them. So there's a lot of these different things that we can do, but there are trade-offs that are involved. And, you know, again, from an engineering perspective, uh, it ends up being all about trade-offs. So part of what we need then is a framework to understand how to reason about these trade-offs. And in particular here, I'm going to be talking about what we call the energy fidelity trade-offs. So energy of how much energy we're consuming that relates to battery life and things like that. And then fidelity, what's the actual quality of the, of the, of the, of the, of the information that's coming out of our system? That's obviously important too. So... I'm going to take you through this. This is sort of kind of getting into a little bit of the engineering side of things. I'll promise I'll pop back out of that in a second. But um, so if we if we take lossy compression as an example, right, where we want to transmit fewer bits, but we may lose some of the information in the process. Well, we can have these different data rate reduction techniques, compression techniques, and we can implement them on our system. Okay, and our tempo system. I mean, we have a microprocessor on that system, so we can do some signal processing, and of course. That takes some amount of time and energy to actually do that processing. That's not, that processing doesn't come for free. I mean, that, if that processor has to do work, then it's going to be consuming energy. So that has to feed into our energy part of our, part of our equation. Now, of course, we can also use our same platform to collect real data. Now, the way that we often do this is that we will collect the data without using lossy compression we'll actually collect the best possible data that we can have and then do a retrospective analysis. What would have happened if we had used lossy compression? 
So what we can do then is we can say, let's apply this compression technique to the data that we collected and see what we would have gotten. And basically two important things come out of that. One is what's called the compression ratio. If we apply that compression technique, how many fewer bits do we have to transmit because we compressed the data? And of course that goes into our energy model because we pay some amount of energy for every single bit we transmit. But then we also have to understand the impact on fidelity. How much worse have we made the signal? How much worse, how much more inaccurate have we made the information that comes out of our system because we used lossy compression? So we have to balance the fidelity loss of the lossy compression against the energy benefit of doing it. Right? So we can see doing different amounts of compression gives us a trade-off between energy and fidelity. So we did this retrospective analysis on some data that we collected. And so what, what you see here is going in this direction is higher and higher compression levels. So this is fewer and fewer bits that we actually have to transmit. This axis here is showing what the distortion of the data is. The higher you go up on this axis, the higher the distortion of the data, the more we've messed up the data basically. And we measure that this is foreshadowing, in, in mean squared error, okay, which is a mathematical technique to look at the signal before and after we did the compression and to say, how different is it? Okay? So, and, it and, and what you see sort of makes sense. The more that we compress the data, the worse and worse the data looks compared to the original signal. So that's why you get the trend in this direction. Now, something else that you'll notice here is that there are three lines plotted here. There's this black one, this blue one, and the red one. The black one is showing what happened when there was a large tremor present. The blue was sort of you know, a medium one or one that was kind of coming and going, and the red one was a very small tremor. Very different relationships. The energy fidelity trade-off was different based on the data that we were seeing. We would never have thought of this on our own. We, only, we, we found this out because we put our, 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 our technology on real patients. Now here's, here's the kicker. All of this data that we did this analysis on came from a single patient, a sing single essential tremor patient during a single clinical visit. So basically, you put the technologies on people, the severity of their tremor changes over time. We already knew that. But now we have to recognize that, that means that we have this dynamic situation between, you know, for, for what the energy and fidelity relationship is. So to show this another way, this is how it looks over time. If we apply a compression, uh, if we ap apply a lossy compression technique to this data that we collected over about an hour and a half visit with this essential tremor patient, and we plot, so this is over time, and this is the distortion, that mean squared error distortion, so higher is worse, you can see that the distortion in that data changes over time with the characteristics of that data. If the tremor is severe, or if it's small, or if it's changing. So an interesting way to look at this is that what if there was this application threshold where we said that, that, that the distortion can never be higher than this, so this blue line across here. What if we said that was sort of our set point? It can never be worse than this, okay? And that's just an arbitrary threshold for now. Well, that means that every time we're in the red, it's bad, right? I mean, the, 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 we, we, there's too much distortion. The, the analysis that we get from this isn't going to be as good as it needs to be. But then when it's down here in the green, it means we could have compressed more and actually saved more energy in our system if we had compressed more to, to get up to this line here. So there being, and there's, we have this dynamic relationship 
between energy and fidelity that we can potentially manage. Okay, So we developed all of these dynamic control techniques so that we're not just programming the system once and have it operate the same way all the time for every patient, but we can actually build some smarts into this system so that it is turning the knobs and how the system operates over time in response to the various things that are going on, including how much tremor the patient is experiencing. So I won't get into the details of this, but here's sort of the, 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 the result that we got, which is sort of this you know, engineering innovation that we got only because we were involved in these real human subject studies. So now here is, you can basically think about this now as energy versus distortion. Okay, so you can see that, so this blue line here was all of these different static points. If we had just had the system operating the same way all the time, just with different compression techniques, we would have ended up at different points on this curve. So, but by using a dynamic technique where, where, where the system was adjusting how much compression it did based on the characteristics of the, of the data that, was, that we were sensing on the patient, we were able to achieve a point that was lower energy and lower distortion than any point on this curve. So that's an engineering innovation, right? We extend the battery life of the system significantly without messing up the data, right? By being sort of intelligent about the way that the system operates. Okay, I said that I was foreshadowing a little bit when I said mean squared error, because there's a really important question that comes out of this, is that what's the right measure of fidelity? What's, what's the right way to, to evaluate how much I've messed up the data when I compressed it. It's almost certainly not mean squared error. Mean squared error is a really easy thing for me to do as an engineer because I have the original data and then I have the compressed data and I can do the mathematical analysis of the comparison and give you a number to say here's how, how different it is. But in the end, that's not what matters. What matters is the information. What matters is the application. What matters is the, the impact on the patient. That's what matters. If by compressing this data, have I messed up a diagnosis? Have I messed up a decision about treatment? That's the kind of thing that I need to know. So it gets back to the, you know, a fundamental engineering issue. I mean, engineering is all about trade-offs, right? You have all these different metrics that you're trying to optimize for. Well, some of the metrics are pretty obvious to us. We can talk about power. We can talk about throughput and reliability and those kinds of things. Um, cost, of course, is and ends up being an important thing. But when you put it in the context of real applications, you have to consider fidelity from an application perspective. And that gives rise to this concept that, that we've introduced that we call quality of information. It's, and, it, and, it's, and it's an information-based analysis rather than a data-based analysis. And that, so as we're designing and optimizing these systems, we have to use the appropriate metrics. We can't just use something like mean squared error and say that we're done. We have to understand the impact at the application level. So quality of information, how does this work? Well, um, and it, uh, the way you can look at it is like, well, let's take, um, you know, so this, you can think about this as tremor data. You could think about this as, you know, as ECG data, um, EMG, uh, wh wh whatever it is. And you can imagine the data in its highest quality form. So, so imagine taking like, or, or, or has anybody used a halter monitor before? So a halter monitor is one of these big boxes that you wear around your neck, and it basically gives you like a continuous ECG uh, feed over about a 24-hour period. It's bulky, it's, you know, it's pretty uncomfortable, and it only collects data for 24 hours. Um, but, you know, it's pretty decent data. I mean, they get, they get fairly high-quality data of that. But, you know, if you think about it in terms of how much power it consumes, how expensive it is, 
this, this metric that we call wearability, how comfortable it is to actually wear, it doesn't do very well for that. But the quality of information is actually pretty darn good that we get out of that. Well, we can look at all these different engineering optimizations, like lossy compression, what I was talking about before, that can dramatically reduce the power consumption of the system, maybe even help with some of these other metrics, but it's going to hurt the quality of information in some way. Fewer sensors. Maybe instead of having you know, 12 ECG leads, you just have three or two. You know, how does that impact things? Well, again, that could you know, really improve the wearability of things, um, but you know, what's the impact on the quality of information? I mean, we actually have to study those things. So there's all these different things we could do in the design and optimization of our system, and some of the metrics, like power and cost and wearability, are a lot clearer than quality of information. How did you have a quantitative analysis of that? So let me tell you about what we're doing to try to get that information. We're asking the people who use the information, right? So one of our applications, we are taking ECG data, and we're asking doctors to look at that data and to make a health decision from that. It could be like maybe the detection of a, you know, atrial fibrillation, something like that, right? And then you give them the same data, except you've messed with it in some way, like you did lossy compression or you use fewer leads, and you ask them to, make, to look at that data again. It's the same data. They don't even know it's the same data, right? You've, but you've, you've distorted it in some way. And you ask them to make a decision again, and you compare it to their original decision. So it's like, it's like what I was saying before. Have we messed up the diagnosis? That's the important question. So we have to do this for like every single one of our applications as we're, as we're trying to reason about you know, these optimizations that we, that, we are, that we feel like we have to make. Okay. So that takes us around this research cycle and went into some details of a lot of the things that we do. Um, so I, let me just real quickly here, actually, and let me, are we doing time-wise? Um, okay. Um, I, I just want to take you through um, some, some examples of some of the other applications that, that we're targeting here. Um, and I'd be happy to talk offline with anybody who either sees something up here that, they, that, that I didn't talk about that you want to hear more about, or maybe even other applications that you all have thought of that we haven't. So this, this is that long, ugly list again that I have of all these different peop uh, people that I've worked with. Um, and so just to go through some of the examples, um, a recent project that we had that was just fascinating um, is with some people in UVA neuropsychology. Um, and they study this condition that's called normal pressure hydrocephalus. I had never heard of it before I met these people. Um, but it's a really, really challenging condition, um, and it's very difficult to diagnose. Um, so it's uh, basically the, the issue with normal pressure hydrocephalus is that it's an accumulation of cerebral spinal fluid in the, in the brain. And the symptoms, the resulting symptoms, are very much like signs, um, uh, um, uh, um, uh, you know, signs of like, um, of like Alzheimer's, you know, d dementia, basically. So there's, um, there's usually some issues with motor skills, some cognitive impairment, sometimes urinary incontinence. So there's a variety of things that can happen where outwardly it appears that it's onset of dementia, or Alzheimer's disease, something like that, but it might actually be this condition called normal pressure hydrocephalus. All right, and the way that, it, the way that they try to do the diagnosis is that they do this thing that's called a high-volume lumbar puncture. And it doesn't sound very fun, and I don't think it is, but it's a, it is an outpatient procedure where you come in and they actually will drain some fluid out of your spine. And the idea is, is that the pressure will normalize, hence the normal pressure. And the, the fluid will come down from the brain and sort of, you know, and, and, and basically release pressure in the brain. So what they do then is they compare 
um, they compare how people do with the cognitive skills and things like that, and also their motor skills, in particular looking at gait of how they walk before and after this procedure. And the issue is if there's improvement, if there is improvement as a result of this lumbar puncture, then they think it's NPH, number pressure hydrocephalus. If there's not improvement, then it's probably not. Now, the thing is, is that if it is normal pressure hydrocephalus, if they, if, if they make that diagnosis, they will, um, the, um, the, then that's when the surgeons take over and they will Im- embed a, a shunt um, in their, in their, basically in the back of their head that is, uh, basically drains the fluid off of their brain and, and so that the, when the pressure is trying to normalize, the fluid has somewhere to go and it basically drains, drains into their abdomen and is just absorbed by the body. And, and, but the, the incredible thing about this, about NPH, is that um, it actually really improves. If, if they get the shunt afterwards, then it really does improve their cognitive skills and their motor skills, can address issues of urinary incontinence. So there's tremendous improvements. In fact, people say that it's the only reversible form of dementia. So, you know, if you can diagnose this, that's, that can be really valuable. I mean, it's, 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 it's relatively rare compared to Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia. But if it's what you have instead of Alzheimer's, then you know, it's good to find this out. But it's really hard to diagnose. So um, we came in because we wanted to help them with how they look at how people walk. So does the gait improve from before to after they do this, this draining of the fluid, this, this lumbar puncture? And so the way they've done it now is they basically look at how fast people walk, count how many steps they take, and that's really about it. It's not, it's not a high-precision assessment of how well they walk. Um, so as a result, it doesn't create this good separation between people who have NPH and people who don't. So we wanted to help with that diagnosis and make it clear, is there improvement in their gait or is there not? And so what we did is we, 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 used, our, we used our tempo system, our high-precision motion capture uh, system, and we put it on people before and after the lumbar puncture, and we analyze different features of how they walk, different gait features, okay? And things like stride time standard deviation, okay? So what that is is that, you know, as you're walking, there's certain amounts of time that you take with each step, and you could look at how much, you know, variability there is. Are you a regular walker or is there some irregularities, right? If there was a reduced standard deviation, you know, from a- after the lumbar puncture, then that's, that's a sign of improvement, Double stance time was another one. So how, what percentage of your gait cycle do you have both feet on the ground? So these are you know, examples of gait features. And we looked at a lot of them. And in the end, they didn't provide what we were looking for, which was separability, separating the people who have NPH from the people who don't have NPH. Okay? So in the end, what we want to be able to do is to look at, you know, for each patient, before the lumbar puncture and after the lumbar puncture, is there improvement? And we want to see a difference between the people who have NPH and the people who don't. So what we'd love to have is a line that separates these two. But unfortunately, for this particular parameter, this was average double stance time, you see some people got better, the double stance time went down, but for other people it got worse and it just wasn't consistent. You couldn't separate these two patient populations using that gait feature. So we tried a bunch of other ones, and, um, and, and in the end, we, we stumbled upon this technique that's used to analyze the stability of someone's gait. It's something that you can't even visually observe. 
that only a high-precision instrument, like our motion capture technology, could even detect the difference. Um, but but so, so the way that this one works is that the lower the value here, the higher the stability of the gate. So what we saw was that for the people who had NPH, their gate stability improved. Okay, this, this number went down. For the people who didn't have NPH, it actually went up a little bit, which we attribute to fatigue and sort of reco recovering from the lumbar puncture process. And as you can see, this provided perfect separability. It's a relatively small study. We had a few more subjects than, than I'm showing here, but it has some real promise to show this as an, you know, a diagnostic enhancer to be able to help separate, you know, to do, to do this differential diagnosis that is so challenging to do. Okay, I'll go through a couple other ones really quickly as well. One of the things that we're, we've been focusing on a lot um, with some of my colleagues at Virginia Tech um, and uh, here in geriatrics at UVA um, and, uh, and, some, and some small companies as well who are getting into this space, um, and then um, uh, also a colleague over in nephrology, um, is looking at fall risk. So I've seen a lot of technologies that come out in recent years that are sort of these wearable sensors that are fall detectors. Right? They try to help detect when somebody has fallen, and that, that's obviously a valuable thing. But what we want to do is prevent the fall from occurring in the first place. Okay? And try to look at how people walk and see if we can see, you know, assess whether or not that they're at risk for falls. So we did this with a variety of populations, and the study that I'm going to talk about real quick was one that we did in nephrology here. So nephrology is kidney disease. And um, this nephrologist that we worked with, um, 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 whose name is Dr. Abdel Rahman, um, he... Uh, He's observed that people who are on dialysis, who have end-stage renal disease, who are on dialysis, fall at a higher rate than those who don't, but who aren't on dialysis. But there's an interesting catch. They only fall at a higher rate in the 24 hours after dialysis. From that 24 hours to their next dialysis session, they fall at the same rate as the rest of the, of the population. So there's something about the dialysis. Dialysis is actually increasing fall risk but nobody has any idea why. So we did this study where we, again, again we did high-precision gait analysis immediately before and then immediately after dialysis and said, what's different? What's, what's gotten worse because of dialysis? And um, so I won't go through the details of all this, but we really had some interesting results, and, um, and we basically showed that some aspects of gait, in particular strength, um, which we then are tracing back to fluctuations in blood pressure that happen when you're on dialysis, um, is, uh, is, is degraded significantly from before dialysis to after dialysis. And one of the other things that we saw too, so some people have dialysis every other day, some people have it every three days, is that the, the, um, the, the amount of recovery that we saw was, uh, you know, from one dialysis session to the next was greater for the people who had more time to recover. That was sort of an interesting issue, too, sort of confirmation there that there was something about the dialysis um, that was resulting in the increased fall risk. Um, okay, so another one. Um, this is one of the subjects that has just uh, sort of grabbed my heart from the, from the moment that I started uh, working with uh, people in orthopedic surgery, actually out at Kluge Children's Rehab Center um, um, over on Ivy, is um, looking at um, improving orthopedic devices in, uh, for children with cerebral palsy. Um, you know, really exciting opportunity here. And, and so um, the specific orthopedic that they were looking at was the ankle, foot orth uh, the, the, the ankle foot orthotic. So you can see it there on the left. 
how it looks where they, um, it's just sort of this plastic boot that they wear that helps them with their gait. Um, and you can see that there, there are different kinds of gait that are, are common in, in children with cerebral palsy. There's, there's, a, there's an, what's called an equinus gait and a crouch gait. And these AFOs, these uh, ankle foot orthotics, are, are supposed to help with those kinds of things. The problem is, is that there's no, there's no monitoring for how effective these orthopedics actually are, especially outside the clinic. So they'll create these ortho, ortho, orthopedics for a child and then observe them in the lab but then they send them home and they get no real information other than patient self-report, like we talked about earlier, uh, for how effective these really are. So we basically had this idea of let's embed sensors in the orthopedic devices so that we can actually track to see how effective they are outside the lab continuously over an extended period of time. And so we did that. Um, we, uh, uh, we, we, we've done our initial validation where we, you can actually see that before, so this is part of the rapid prototyping. Before we took all that time to embed sensors in an orthopedic device, we first put tempo on them as is, right? On these children, they're in the lab, and we basically validated that we were able to get the information out of them that we wanted, which was basically various aspects of their gait, various gait features. And then we were able to validate this against a high-precision motion capture system, one of those camera-based motion capture labs. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it's really very exciting. So, so once we did that initial validation, now we're embedding sensors into the orthopedic devices, and the goal is by the end of summer that children will start wearing these home and we'll have continuous data on, on how well they walk. And then, of course, we can use that as feedback to improve the orthopedic devices and tailor them to each individual child. Um, another um, project that, is, that has been really quite interesting for us, um, it, wasn't a, it wasn't an application I initially thought of um, when, within the context of motion, but I started working with some people down at the Carillion Center for Healthy Aging down in Roanoke who wanted to assess agitation in dementia patients. So it's kind of an interesting issue. Um, you know, again, part of my ongoing education in, in this space, collaborating with all these, all these wonderful people, is, um, so agitation is, is one of the, you know, one of the biggest issues. It's, the, it's actually been cited as the biggest caregiver burden. So if there's, if, there's, if there's somebody with dementia who's continuing to live at home, being cared for by loved ones, that dealing with, um, with episodes of agitation can be very difficult, can be very stressful. Um, I mean, they can be very confusing. Uh, one of the things that we hear a lot from caregivers is that um, their loved one is, exhi is exhibiting behaviors during periods of agitation that are so unlike them, right, before they, before they started suffering from dementia. And, and so they really wanted to try to understand it better, see if they could prevent it, prevent episodes of agitation, and, and, and see if they could actually um, and, 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 and deal with it better. So, so this is really sort of a, a caregiver empowerment kind of study that we're doing is can we, can we study what it is that results in people, be, in, in people with dementia becoming agitated, and that could be different for each person, um, and detecting maybe early stages of an agitation episode so we can intervene before that agitation ramps up to something more significant. And so we developed, we basically started looking at physical agitation. So by using our tempo technology, we can look at how people move and start to make assessments about physical agitation by how jerky the movements might be or repetitive movements, things along those lines. And we wanted to then validate that against some existing clinical measures of agitation. Um, they really wanted to have you know, continuous monitoring of this, not having an expert observer. So we did this. 
Um, you know, we, we, we put our technology on, on real patients and, uh, and we had an expert observer at the same time and we validated the assessments that we made with our technology about the severity of an agitation episode. We validated it against the expert observation using clinical, you know, accepted clinical measures. And so, um, again, it was a small pilot study, but now we're actually ramping up to a significantly larger study where people are going to be wearing these home, and we're also going to have sensors embedded in the home where we're going to be able to try to see if there are causal factors for agitation. Is it something where maybe certain lighting conditions or um, uh, the, um, the, um, you know, what's going on in terms of sound in the room, is that something that tends to lead to agitation episodes? And we can find that out. And if we can find that out, then the caregivers can try to avoid those situations and prevent those kinds of things from happening. And hopefully then we can show a reduction in the number and severity of agitation episodes, which could then be a dramatic reduction on caregiver burden. So one of the exciting things there is you know, caregiver empowerment. Um, that's one of those things. Are, in this case, the data is not going to the doctor or the medical researcher. It's going to the loved one of the, of the patients. The people who are actually taking care of them at home. Okay, so there's also a bunch of other, sub I mean, so one of the, again, one of the fun things about this for me is that I get to just keep on having new conversations with people who work in various areas. So, so these are all planned studies, ones that are, conversations are ongoing, and just to talk about a few of them, um, one of the things that's been fascinating for me is I've started working with some behavioral psychologists and, um, I mean, studying human, <laughs> human motivations and why it is we behave the way that we do. Uh, why it is that I can give a talk like this, but then I'm, you know, if there's a piece of chocolate cake out there, I'll definitely eat it. Um, I mean, it's, you know, there are those kinds of funny, funny aspects of, uh, of, of human behavior. So how is it that we can understand ourselves better um, and, uh, you know, deal with issues like obesity, and in particular in this project, we're looking at childhood obesity, and, uh, and, and to try to affect diet and activity um, in a way that we could really make a difference um, with, with obesity. So um, behavior modifying feedback, I think, is really potentially exciting. Um, so another, another study, actually, this, I can move this one now from planned to, to ongoing, because we actually just finished our first data collection for this one. It's another at-home dementia study, and it's actually looking at the relationship between nighttime agitation and urinary incontinence. It's a study that we have collaboration with somebody in geriatric nursing here at UVA. It's a really interesting project. Um, I, I mentioned earlier in the talk that most of the applications I was going to talk about today were focused on the high-precision motion capture analysis with our core tempo technology, but we also look at a lot of other sensing modalities, so ECG, EMG, EEG, blood pressure monitoring, and also environmental monitoring. One of the exciting things that we've looked at is, is air quality monitoring air, you know, monitoring um, like ozone. So we actually have a study with somebody down at the University of North Carolina uh, who works at the EPA facility there that's studying childhood asthma and wants to be basically put our monitoring technologies on them while also monitoring um, the ozone, amount of ozone in the air. So that's an interesting project. Okay, so let me wrap it back up into these initial questions that I posed, right? So I hope, you're, I, hope I didn't dampen your spirits, spirits too much about the first question, right? Because, I, I mean, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be, wouldn't be working in this space if I wasn't really excited about the potential here. But I really hope that you understand how important this second question is. And with all the things I talked about today, it's all towards addressing that second question. I mean, in the end, I mean, I... The thing that horrifies me, you know, uh, thinking about this field sometimes, is that it can get so overhyped. I mean, you probably have already seen some some articles in the paper, uh, 
or online about you know technologies like this that are coming out, and it's you know and it is exciting. Um, you know, I'm glad that it's getting good press, but at the same time, and like you know, if we're not yet showing improved health outcomes, if we're not showing reduced healthcare cost yet, and if we're still years away from being able to show that, you know, with science-based research, then you know, I little I worry that it's going to be just be looked at as a fad. Right before it really has a chance to you know to do what it what, what needs to be done. So that's that's something I'm really focused on. Um, I want to say too um, some acknowledgments in terms of funding sources. I mean I, I have a huge number of people that I could thank. First and foremost, my students and my and my collaborators. But um, one of the things that's been really interesting about this is um, the, the various people that I've worked with who have had interest in this work. And so um, uh, so when I first started working in this space. I went to some program managers that I knew at the National Science Foundation who fund a lot of engineering research. And I started talking to them about this concept of wireless body sensors for health applications. And they're like, oh, let me stop you right there. Health? No, no, no. We, National Science Foundation doesn't fund, fund health. Go talk to NIH, National Institutes of Health. And I said, oh, okay. So I can go talk to NIH. And I started talking. Then, you know, get them all excited. And I started talking about and all this technology research that we would do. And they'd say, oh, let me stop you there. Technology research, go talk to the National Science Foundation. So there actually was this gap in between these national funding agencies. And so it was actually a matter of talking to program managers over the years. And they, they saw that there was this problem. And now the National Science Foundation and the National Institutes of Health have joint programs where they are helping researchers bridge the gap between the fundamental technology research and the health applications, which is so critical for, for working in this area. I must also acknowledge UVA for all the, how generous have they been with providing seed funding over the years. Um, a lot of these things, as you can imagine, like, like in response to that um, uh, to, to what the, um, um, some of those neurosurgeons said during our first meetings. That sounds great. Why don't you go ahead and build it? Well, who's going to pay to build that, right? Fortunately, there were some people at UVA who really believed in this project, including my dean, uh, including um, the vice president for research office, who, were, um, who really helped sort of secure some seed funding so we could get some of these projects going. And then we've been working with a lot of companies over the years as well, some small businesses that are trying to you know, make progress in this space, and then some larger healthcare companies and technology companies who are interested in getting into the space as well. Okay, so um, let, let, actually, I won't, I won't even leave it on that slide. Let me just, let me just leave it here. But um, so I... I hope this was interesting. I, I hope that there was a little something for everybody. I wanted to have a little bit of that engineering in there, but I also really wanted to talk about what I think some of the things are that are so exciting from an application perspective. Um, but I think the last thing that I want to say is, is going back to the very first thing that I said is 10 years ago, my dean asked me to look around and say, you know, you're here at UVA. What's special about that? And, you know, and I can look back on all this work that I've done since, and it's because I'm at a place like UVA. Um, a, a place that uh, that values uh, that values innovation, uh, that supports interdisciplinary research, um, and that is this comprehensive university where you know again you can find an expert on anything uh, at this place. And and I feel I feel grateful to be here and uh, to be uh, uh, um, you know count myself as part of the uh, of the UVA community along with all of you. So thank you very much. I'd love to take any uh, questions or comments you might have.